what they were being punished for, of course, was in some respect the desire for power, the desire to step out of the lot that life or God or whoever had determined for them. The audacity to demand power on one's own terms in colonial Massachusetts was both threatening and attractive. And the desire to to dare to want more or to want something different, even if that thing that they wanted was just respect or the right to express anger or things that we still feel like we have to demand for ourselves to some degree today. In 2021, women made up of over half of all summer associates for the fourth year in a row. Yet equity partners and multi-tier law firms continue to be disproportionately white men. Only 22% of equity partners are women. We would like to see that change. Hello, and welcome to LawHer, the show where we celebrate the trailblazing attorneys and entrepreneurs who are changing the game for women in the legal fields. Be inspired by their stories, learn from their mistakes, build community, and look forward to the future they're helping build for the next generation of women in law. I am Sonia Palmer, your host and VP of Operations at Rankings, the SEO agency of choice for personal injury lawyers. This is LawHer. When we think of the Salem Witch Trials, it is easy to dismiss the accusations and punishments as the result of a backward or less evolved or superstitious way of life. But in this world, in the 1690s, witchcraft was not fantasy, it was fact, believed by well-reasoned people and a menace to an ordered peaceful life. A crime as severe as murder, witchcraft was a felony. And as the way we think about witches has evolved over the centuries, I can't help but wonder... Why has the witch had such a stronghold on our imaginations? What does power have to do with who gets accused? How do social dynamics shape the legal system? What did the world of 1692 look like for the people who lived through the trials? And how can we keep from falling into similar cognitive traps? Here to help answer all of these questions is New York Times bestselling and award-winning writer of historical fiction, Catherine Howe. She edited the Penguin Book of Witches for Penguin Classics and authored the Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, a historical fiction novel that travels between witch trials of the 1690s and a modern life. Let's dive in. From a historian's standpoint, like one of the things that makes Salem such an intriguing, evergreen topic of interest is that it's one of the few instances when we actually get a window into the everyday lives of of normal people, like normal people, and not only normal people, but women specifically are at the center of the drama. They are the majority of the accusers. They're the majority of the accused. And so from a historian's perspective, Salem witches specifically hold a lot of interest, partly for for that reason. As for why over time we continue to be interested in witches, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Certainly the question of power is one of those. The issue of who has power, how do we achieve power? How do we hold on to it? Power was exactly the word that I had in my head for what I am intrigued by is a strong, powerful female, (laughs) Um, the witch. So um, when were you kind of first drawn to it? Why did you kind of go down that path? I'm a novelist and a historian, and I started writing, I mostly write historical fiction, although I've been writing nonfiction lately. Much of my historical fiction is witch-related or witch-adjacent somehow. And it kind of started out when I was in graduate school. I was doing graduate work in American studies, which is like interdisciplinary American history. 
And I was living in this little town in New England called Marblehead, which has the largest collection of 18th century houses in the whole country, which not a lot of people know. And it's also one town over from Salem. And Salem today, you know, witches are a big part of Salem's tourism industry and culture. And one thing that I find kind of fascinating and intriguing is how many people who are drawn to contemporary forms of witchcraft as a religion, like modern paganism or modern Wicca, feel a very strong sense of solidarity with people who are accused as witches in the past. And as a result, a lot of people kind of gravitate to Salem almost as like a pilgrimage place, which is fascinating to me on many levels. So I was living close to Salem, looking at this really interesting cultural phenomenon, and also living in a house that was built in 1705. And I had this one day where I was sitting on the floor and I realized that someone's foot had been on this floor who had actually been present at the hangings because people traveled from all over the colonies to see the, it was a huge spectacle at the time. And that was just kind of for some, something about the tangibility of that, the, like the spatial recognition of that really brought me to thinking about it. And so my first novel came about, my first novel is called the physic book of deliverance Dane. And it came about because I found myself wondering if Salem witches had practiced magic the way that the colonists understood witchcraft to be, rather than in the more fantastic Harry Potter-esque kind of sense, what would it look like and who would do it and why would they do it? Because I felt like we had seen plenty of pointy hat witch stories and I felt like we'd seen plenty of totally skeptical, they were all crazy stories a la Arthur Miller. And I felt like I hadn't seen a story that took seriously the fact that for people living in the late 17th century in this part of the world, witchcraft was actually just a fact. You know, the world looks very different if you are a reasonable, educated person and witchcraft is a fact of your cosmology. And I enjoyed thinking about that kind of question. I still enjoy thinking about that kind of question. Yes. And you have a unique connection to witches. You are a direct descendant. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. My last name is Howe. And as a teenager, I had learned that we were descended kind of laterally from uh, Elizabeth Howe, who was put to death as a witch at Salem. Um, Rather weirdly, I picked Deliverance Dane was a real person. And I wrote my first novel about her. And she was someone who was accused near the end of the panic. She'd had a very minor role to play. And I I chose her for two reasons. One, because her name was so evocative of this particular moment in time. It sounded so metal, just like Deliverance Dane, crazy. And secondly, because she was so obscure, I felt like there was room to tell a more fantastical story about her, um, that no reader would come with like a preconceived notion of who she was, the way they would with like a Rebecca Nurse or somebody like that. But rather weirdly, in one of these bizarre twists of fate, some historians I really admire have said that nothing will make you more superstitious than working um, witchcraft. Years later, after this book came out, I was messing around on a genealogy website and I discovered that Deliverance Dane is actually my eighth great grandmother. I'm more closely related to her to than her. to now. Wow. And I had no idea when I wrote the novel about her. So I definitely got more superstitious um, the longer <laughs> I worked in the witchcraft space. Yeah, it was whatever you subscribe to, fate, karma, that mm-hmm. is that is very, very, very cool. And these stories are very painful. And it's easy to sort of dismiss the trials as a result of like superstitious ignorance. For frame of reference for our listeners, we're talking about colonial Massachusetts in the 15 to 1600s. 
In an interview with Jezebel, you noted witchcraft was real and it was rational. What was rational about it? The way that we understand our world today, like there's so many things that we take for granted that order how we reason through materials that we don't pay attention to. So for instance, we're living, obviously we're living in a post-scientific revolution moment in time. You know, we don't question the heliocentric model of the universe. We don't question um, that correlation and causation are different. Although even now for some of us, that can be kind of hard to keep in mind. So we live in that moment. We right now live in a post-Freudian moment, actually. So for a lot of us, it feels very natural to talk about, you know, things that happen in our unconscious mind, things that motivate us that we're not aware of. You know, we constitute our individuality and our understandings of ourselves through these culturally and historically specific rubrics, uh, if that makes sense. And so I wanted to spend some time thinking about what it's like to be an intelligent, educated, thoughtful, reflective person who does not order their world according to these sets of assumptions. The Salem Panic took place in 1692. It was sort of the last big witch craze moment. Like the witch craze moment kind of ripped through Europe and then through what what we now call Great Britain um, over the 1400s and 1500s. And 1692 is actually pretty late. Like most of the witch hunting had kind of died down on the continent by that time. And so thinking about a world where it was universally assumed that the devil was real. The devil could assume the shape of a human being and walk around. This was not subject to question, you know, to think about a world that was so ordered by Christianity that there was no outside of Christianity. So like there was no sense that there could be, you know, other people who adhere to other religions that are just as legitimate, you know, that there was that which is reality. And then there was everything else was devilish. So trying to understand that rigidity of thinking and that black and white of thinking, you know, um, this is a post-Reformation moment. And there wasn't even a sense that like Catholicism was one kind of Christianity and Calvinism was something else. You know, the, the reason it was called the Reformation was because People were trying to reform Christianity to make it into what it was supposed to be. So there was no, you're this and I'm that, it's fine. There was, I'm this and that's what it is. And so within that context, witchcraft has a lot of different meanings. It means a couple of different things. Like for someone who was a theologian at the time, so during the Salem crisis, you know, the trials were overseen by theologians and also by legislators. For those people, they had kind of one definition of what witchcraft really was. Um, And witchcraft for them was in some respects like a challenge to state authority. And of course, in 17th century Massachusetts, the state authority is also very gendered. The power structure is gendered male. Amongst common people, amongst average everyday people, there was actually widespread like belief in folk magic practices in like like charms in like ways of divining things, not so different from what we have today. You know, we all have these little superstitions that we all, that we all stick to, you know, an example I used to sometimes use in giving a talk is like, 
if I'm nervous and I'm going to give a talk, I might wear my grandmother's wedding ring because it makes me feel closer to her. It makes me feel a little bit safer. And the word that I'll use to describe that feeling is, oh, it's an heirloom. That's why it has value to me. But actually, I'm treating it like a magical talisman. Like I'm actually imbuing <laughs> this, this dull object with some kind of ineffable quality because of who it belonged to. And so, and so we still have this kind of mental habit today. So among common people, that mental habit was in place in the 17th century as well. And so what, what happened with Salem was there was this kind of collision between popular belief and the power structure and the ways that, that witchcraft represented a challenge to the power structure that was in place at the time. Interesting. We have a much deeper understanding of a lot of principles that we take advantage of, where back then they were working from a lot less. So that makes a lot of sense. And even though we see um, like state and church at odds, even still today, then there was not an alternative that was even an option and mere doubt could be perceived as witchcraft or like an alternative type of thinking. At least in 17th century Massachusetts, there wasn't really a distinction between the intellectual universes that were the church and were the state. So in fact, one of the common misconceptions about Salem that I hear all the time is people think that people who were condemned as witches in Salem were burned at the stake. They were not, none of them were. Uh, they were burned at the stake in Europe because in Europe they were being punished as an ecclesiastical crime. In Massachusetts, witchcraft was a felony. It was the same as um, murder. Wow. And so people who were punished as witches were punished by being hanged at the neck, just the same as they would have been if they had murdered someone. Unbelievable. So let's kind of set the stage for these trials. Why are social dynamics so important and how are women generally viewed? I mean, so you have gender politics in place. You also have class politics in place. Mm. So a few different historians have noted that most of the women who were tried as witches we're not actually your kind of Hansel and Gretel old crone living in the woods stereotype. In fact, most of the women who were tried were women like around my age, you know, at middle age, 40s to the, to the 60s, women who otherwise would have been at the peak of their social power and influence and who, for whatever reason, were often failing to adhere to the cultural expectations that were placed on them at that time. So maybe they were women who were who had had like a dramatic economic reversal, or maybe they were women who had not been able to have children. In fact, there's often an interesting relationship between women who are accused as witches often have like a strange or out of step relationship with childbearing for that time. Either not, they don't have enough children. They're too interested in other people's children. There's a weird inversion of motherhood and how motherhood is supposed to be um, understood at that time. And so um, broadly what happens is some young girls, the, the panic begins in the home of Samuel Paris, who was Salem Village's minister. His daughter, Betty, falls into fits, and so does uh, his servant, who was also his, his kinswoman. We don't actually know how they were related, um, Abigail Williams. And they fall into fits, and their fits, if you look at the description, if I say fit to you, you probably picture something very somatic. You probably imagine, like, a seizure. But actually, what the, the way they use that word then, it means just like strange behavior. And if you look at some of the strange behavior, Betty's around nine and Abigail's around 11. A lot of their strange behavior to our modern eyes would look like playing and being silly. Like Abigail 
running around in circles in the kitchen, flapping her arms and saying she could fly and going wish, 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 and trying to fly up the chimney um, to a very dour religious controlled environment would look devilish. And yet to you and me it would look like, Oh my gosh, it's an 11 year old acting like a, like a nut bar because that's what 11 year olds do. And so they can't find anything physically wrong with the girls. They do call a doctor. The girls are examined. They do know about mental illness at this time period. And so they try to rule out, you know, as best they can that way. And it's only after a, a period of time elapses that, in fact, Samuel Paris has a public uh, fast and prayer days trying to bring everyone together. If Samuel Paris had been a really responsible religious leader at this time, he would probably have looked at himself. He would have thought to himself, why has God visited this sickness on my house? What have I done to bring this onto myself? But Samuel Paris is unfortunately not a particularly effective leader. And what he decides to do is he says, what have you all done to bring in the community to bring this sickness onto my house? So he very quickly kind of turns it around and onto the Salem villagers. And one thing that's interesting, if you look at the trial transcripts and stuff, the kinds of long simmering resentments and hurts that any small community nourishes all come bubbling to the surface. Things that happened 15 years ago are being, you know, minor slights are being entered as if they are damning evidence of people's character. It's a really moving representation of a community under a tremendous amount of pressure. Amazing. Like, I guess to me, it's how far we've come and like how familiar that still sounds, you know, just to digitize that, like on a Facebook group, you know, like a local yeah. Facebook group and what that would look like. It's the exact same thing. <laughs> it's not actually that different. I've never, I haven't actually been in a Facebook group where people suddenly start getting shouted down and, and purged and so on and so forth, but read about this kind of thing happening. And so, yeah, this, this mentality is still there. There's still the sense of, um, you know, if you don't behave properly, if you don't tow the line that you're supposed to tow, and it can be actually hugely devastating because in a community as small as Salem Village was, everyone is economically totally interdependent on everybody else. If your reputation is in tatters, that actually means very dire things for your economic well-being and, and safety. And so, you know, there are several instances in not outside of Salem. Salem wasn't the only witch trial in this in this period. You can kind of see shadows of hints of people who were suspected as witches by looking at trials for um, slander and defamation. Because if someone was going around saying you were a witch, it could hurt your economic standing in your family. And so there was a strong incentive for uh, women who were under suspicion to sue for slander to try to clear their names. Wow. For them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes it worked. The burden of proof, believe it or not, was actually pretty high for witchcraft. Like it was actually kind of hard to make a case uh, successful for, for witchcraft. There were theoretical arguments about what kind of evidence was admissible and what wasn't. And it was it's fascinating stuff for legal historians, I'm sure. What counted as witchcraft? And like, how were those charges leveled? And could you ever prove your innocence? Yes and no. I mean, so what counted as witchcraft was a number of different things. And a big one was like some kind of insult or, or, or um, conflict followed by maleficium. So pretend like you're at home, 
and you're a typical early colonial Massachusetts woman. So you're home, you've got a couple of kids at home, you've got your mother-in-law living with you, you know, you've got your husband, you've probably got maybe a couple young kids bound out to you who are working in your house. You've got a household, you're running, you're busy, things are, things are going on. And let's say I am having a tough time. Let's say, um, let's say my husband has died and maybe I have, maybe I've have a screw loose or two. I'm hard to deal with. I'm argumentative. I've been known to get into fistfights with people at church. And so everybody kind of gives me a wide berth because I have, I have an attitude problem. And as a result, because I have an attitude problem, economically, I'm really in bad shape. So let's say I come to your house and I'm like, Hey, goody Sonia, I'm really hungry. Um, have you got uh, maybe like some, something I could eat or some like extra bread or like, you know, here, look, I, I, I knitted you this sock. I want to trade this sock for something. And let's say you don't have anything extra. Let's, you know, maybe you're having a, a rough day, you know, things are going on, whatever. And you say, I'm sorry, goody Catherine, I can't help you today. You've, you've got to go ask somebody else. I can't, I can't cope. You know, you're thinking to yourself, why does she always come to me? Am I, am I such a sucker? Why is she, am I such a soft touch? No, I can't, I can't be single-handedly responsible for this irritating neighbor of mine. Go away. Scram. I'm busy. And maybe I say, you're going to regret it if you don't help me. You're going to really regret it. Well, maybe I feel like, maybe what I mean is, you know, you're going to feel guilty later. You're going to realize that that was an unchristian thing for you to do to send me away. Maybe that's what I mean. But say like, I say this, we have this conflict you go back in, back to your work. And maybe then your butter doesn't come together. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like a big deal, but this is before the consumer revolution of the 18th century. Like actually wasting your time, wasting a lot of milk, having your butter not not come together. Butter can store, milk can't. Like that's actually kind of a big deal. And if your butter doesn't come together for whatever reason, like you would think back to this threat that I'd made. That to you could be seen as a sign that I had somehow caused your butter not to come together. Correlation and causation would have been tangled together. And so the fact that I issued some kind of threat, the fact that I had this reputation in the first place would be something. So that's one kind of evidence that might've been entered into a trial. Another kind of evidence uh, was physical evidence. Um, They would search, it was believed at this time that witches had little demon helpers so if you're talking about Halloween, think about the black cat who's sitting next to a witch. At her ah, yes. Um, they had little demon helpers called um, imps. And it was believed that witches would suckle imps from teats on their bodies. So you, you see in here this very transparent like inversion of maternal imagery, right? A thing that's supposed to be nurturing is actually demonic and horrifying. Deviant, yeah. And, and as a result, um, the suckling wasn't at a breast. The teat where the suckling would happen would be somewhere else on the body. So between your fingers or behind your knees or something like that. So women who were accused as witches were often stripped naked and searched for these telltale teats. Now, of course, by the time you're being stripped, stripped naked and searched, they're going to find something, something like they're going to find a mole. They're going to find a zit. They might find your clitoris. Mm. Rebecca Nurse, actually, in her, when she was strip searched, uh, the description of what was found on her body reads to most historians like a description of her clitoris. So physical evidence, that was a big one. And then another one was something that was subject to a lot of high level theological debate, and that was spectral evidence. So some theologians, first I'll explain what spectral evidence is, and then I'll explain the controversy. So spectral evidence is 
let's go back to our imaginary example of you and me where I'm the suspected witch and you are the person who's going to accuse me. Say like you're lying in bed one night and you see my shape float in through the window. And I tell my shape tells you that I, through magic and witchcraft, am responsible for the death of your sister's baby. Babies died a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, that would count as potentially as evidence against me. Imagine you're lying there in bed. You're, you're already worrying about me. You're already thinking that I'm kind of iffy and, and I already make you uncomfortable. And your sister's baby has just died. Something tragic, something horrifying. It's, it's a mistake to assume that just because childhood mortality was really high and people had more kids at this period that they weren't also devastated, devastated. when they lost children because yes. uh, they often were. So imagine you're up there, you're upset, you're thinking about me, you dream or imagine that you see me come in the window and confess to this crime. So the big question then for theologians at this time was, is the devil able to assume the shape of an innocent person? Was it actually my spirit coming in and telling you that I had done this horrible crime? Or is the devil pretending to be me? If the devil's pretending to be me, is he able to impersonate me if I'm innocent? Or is he only able to impersonate me if I am guilty? This was a high level, deep, hardcore theological debate that informed the Salem witch trials for real. That is intense because just having the spectral image is then evidence of guilt. You can only envision that if you're able to be used by the devil. Um, Yeah, it it works very much in favor of the accusers and not at all towards the accused. Exactly. And Salem is sort of anomalous too. Usually during a witch trial, if you were accused as a witch and you confessed, you were toast. Salem is weird because people who insisted on their innocence were often the ones put to death and people who falsely confessed Maybe they believe themselves to be guilty. I mean, there's a lot of, you probably are more familiar with research on false confessions than I am, but there has been plenty of research done on it. And so plenty of people confessed during the Salem witch trials. Most of those who confessed then were not hanged. They would often sometimes then join the ranks of the accusers. They would try to name the person who had made them responsible. So for instance, at the very beginning of the trial, we were back at Samuel Paris's small kids in his house. The first person that they blame is a woman named Tichuba, who was an enslaved person, probably of Carib descent, who was living in Samuel Paris's house and who had probably traveled with Samuel Paris from Barbados um, to settle in Salem. Here's someone who obviously has very little power within the context of her community. She's a woman. She is an enslaved person. And so she is a very easy person for the kids to point their fingers at. Tichuba then says that she didn't want to do it. She was made into a witch by other people in the community. And so Tichuba introduces, and there's some evidence that she has two confessions. There's one confession, and then there's there's another confession the following day. There's evidence that she was beaten between those two confessions. And it is in the second confession that she introduces the idea of there being a conspiracy of witches in Salem Village. And um, I think the title of one of the uh, sermons that Samuel Paris preaches at that time is Christ Knows How Many Devils There Are. 
you know, and so the idea of conspiracy means it can, it can kind of infinitely expand, which is one reason that the Salem panic goes from Salem village up to Andover and then all into the surrounding County multiplies easily. Yeah. Did they get lawyers or advocates? That's actually a good question. I don't believe that they did. There was a special court of OIA and Termine that was called, but the court of OIA and Termine was called in part because there was a weird legal loophole that happened. While the panic was starting, the glorious revolution took place back in England. And so there was a moment where like the legal system in Massachusetts was in flux. And while the legal system was in flux, there was a delay in the trials. So usually if someone was accused as a witch or any other accusation, really, the trial would happen, bim, bam, you know, they'd be, could be executed within like three weeks. You know, we think of a murder trial as being long and drawn out now. Months a year. Right. But so many months actually passed between the first outbreak and the first trial. It was like six months, I want to say. And in fact, there's, there's one letter that is from, the head of the Massachusetts Bay Colony at that time that's like writing back to England, basically being like, yeah, so everything's fine. Everything's <laughs> cool. Are we going to have a new charter soon? Or, <laughs> um, which is, I mean, it's, it's a little funny now, but so it's it's been posited that maybe the court of OIA and Termine wasn't just for the Salem witch trials. It was actually just because there was a huge backlog of everything, but that what has lasted in the historical record is mostly the Salem witch related stuff because it was the biggest thing that was happening at that time. But it's also possible that one of the reasons that the Salem panic grew so big was because there was this un- unaccustomed delay in how quickly they could have a trial. And so individuals were tried by a panel of judges and a jury, if I'm not mistaken. There was a jury. I don't believe that they had advocates. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Did the accused ever seem like from the court records to believe their accusers or the charges that were against them? You talked about the devil and like, if you were possessed, would you have known you were possessed? It's funny. The, the, the attitudes of people who are brought before the bar vary pretty widely. There's a lot of blubbering and apology and, and admitting it. And then there's also my favorite quote is from Sarah Good. And she says, I'm no more a witch than you are a wizard. And if you take away my life, God will give you blood to drink. Wow. Which is basically <laughs> the bravest thing that anybody could, I think anybody could say at that, at that point. And I don't yes. think she's been that brave. She was so tough and they did take away her life. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne actually uh, borrowed that line and put it in um, the House of the Seven Gables. While the accusations of the trials may seem like they were wild, baseless conjecture, there was an accepted method. But where did this understanding come from? So, like, think about the Inquisition and, um, you know, one of the biggest witch hunting manuals is a Catholic manual called The Hammer of the Witches, which was published in, I think, 1486. So we have like a 200 year long roll, basically, that starts swelling up in... Germany and France, and then swells and rolls over the channel and into England and then up to Scotland, and then washes with waves of immigration beginning in the 1620s to North America, and then 
kind of takes hold in North America. But North America is an interesting problem isn't the right word, but North America is a little bit interesting. The different regions, the different colonies were settled by different groups of people, which is one reason that you see a lot, relatively speaking, a lot of witch trials in Massachusetts, you see very few in the Southern colonies. They're settled by different populations from a different, from different regions in Britain with different religions, with different economies, with different village structures. And so one of the things that makes Massachusetts special is that it's this, this region of Massachusetts was settled by Puritans, which is an extreme subsect of Calvinism. And so it's pretty different from a predominantly what you now call Episcopalian slave plantation society in Virginia, for instance, although there are a couple of Virginia witch trials, which are interesting. So like the law is the same, but the culture is different. And you'd kind of just touched on like a manual for witch hunting. And there was another endorsed by the crown, uh, a manual written by King James himself. <laughs> yeah. James I wrote a very derivative witch hunting manual called Demonology. Wow. It's sort of like, like just this side of plagiarized witch hunting manual, which is hilarious, but he was, um, he was a very avid witch hunter. James the first and sixth. Are there any modern day trials that you can think of that compare? to what we saw then? One historian, John Demos, had a book a few years ago that had, he's a historian of Salem, a colonial historian. And he had a chapter in one of his more recent books that was about the 1980s daycare Satanism. Ooh, wow. Scandal, in which there was a, I was small at the time, so I'm only going to remember the broad contours of it from having read Professor Demos's book. But basically what happened was there was a series of trials in which people who ran daycares were accused of hideous child abuse, according to quote unquote, satanic ritual principles. This is a real thing that happened. I think a lot of them were actually convicted And Professor Demos watched this happening and he was like, this is insane. This is just the same kind of thing as what was happening in Salem. You know, you have suggestible, very young kids, you have authority figures, you have a conspiracy, you have an unknown number of people in the conspiracy. It speaks to some of our deepest, you know, we're as a, as a society, I think rightfully so we are very concerned with children and their safety That was true in the 17th century. It was true in the 20th century. It's true today. And so that is actually kind of an interesting test case. How many children did you abuse for your satanic rituals? Like, how, what do you, how are you going to answer that question? When did you stop beating your wife? You know, you, that would probably be an example that would be a pretty close parallel. Mm -hmm. I grew up eighties, nineties where Satanism, particularly Christian church was like a very real threat. (laughs) Um, it was covered extensively. Yeah. The D&D, the worry that Dungeons and Dragons somehow was an insidious force for spreading Satanism or the, the idea that rock music was spreading satanic messages. I remember all of these things. A similar escalation too, where if something bad happened in a town or happened to a family, it was clearly the cause of these, you know, alternative non-Christian. Right. These others, the others. These others, yeah. That aren't acting proper. Do you think there was any ever actual merit to any of the accusations? Was there a witch? 
<laughs> There's an interesting, he's not a Salem witch. He was tried earlier. Um, actually, he shows up in John Demas's work. Um, his name was John Godfrey. He was unusual for being a man accused as a witch, actually. He had a bad reputation for years and he was clearly a difficult character. It seems like he enjoyed his reputation a little bit. It seems like he enjoyed like creeping people out a little and being like, I guess you better not mess with me if I'm as bad as everybody says that I am, stuff like that. And it certainly seems logical that if you live within a cultural context that that holds some of these beliefs, certainly people did practice some forms of folk magic. I mean, that that's like not really open to debate. Um, you still find horseshoes nailed over doors and, and you know, that's pretty mild, but it's a very widespread cultural practice. In fact, one thing that was interesting was years later, I was working on a different project and I was reading a, an oral history of folk magic collected in the 20th century in the South. And I found in this oral history from like 1932 as part of the, I think it was part of the Federal Writers Project, an exact description of a divination method that I had first encountered in a 17th century source in England. So there's an interesting syncretism to the ways that you know, when cultures come together, what gets held on to and what doesn't. Did people try out this kind of stuff? You know, who knows? We, we don't know. It's impossible to know. Let's talk about power women and witches. What was it that was so terrifying about witches and witchcraft? In the 17th century, witchcraft was about trying to use diabolical means to achieve power that did, that should not belong to you. You know, and it, there's many stories about the devil coming and trying to seduce witches into his service by offering them soft living and goods and nice things to eat. And in fact, one um, very prominent skeptic at in this time, there were skeptics who wrote against witch hunting um, at this time period too, an anti-witch hunting screed was called More Wonders of the Invisible World, which was designed to take down one called Wonders of the Invisible World. You know, in one of these anti-witch hunting screeds, the, the writer says, you know, if witches are the real thing, like if this is a real thing, then how come they're not all young, beautiful, rich, and successful? How come the people that we accuse as witches are all like poor and desperate and crazy effectively powerless <laughs> powerless exactly why are we why are they why do they not have the power that's been promised to them if this is a real thing which i think is an interesting point but what they were being punished for of course was in some respect the desire for power the desire to step out of the lot that life or god or whoever had had determined for them and the desire to to dare to want more or to want something different um, even if that thing that they wanted was just respect or the right to express anger or things that we still feel like we have to demand for ourselves to some degree today. I think just the notion that they may have access via magic to power that the established state and church authority. That's not granted by an institution. That's not granted by the church. That's not granted by Harvard College. That's not granted by gender. It's <laughs> not granted by gender. Yeah, exactly. Totally. It's not granted by wealth. You know, the, the audacity to demand power on one's own terms, I think, is one of the reasons that witchcraft was so threatening and also so attractive. It's one of the things that we are still that kind of gives, gives us all a frisson of excitement when we think about what witchcraft can mean. Yes. How did the trials come to an end? Well, the accusations rolled out over the countryside and rolled up and up and up the social ladder. 
mm. actually, until they finally touched the governor's wife. <laughs> and then, incredibly, the trials were brought to a screeching halt. Wow. Yep. That's what it took. That's what it took. Amazing. And then how have you seen the concept of a witch change over the years? You kind of briefly talked about this earlier, where now it's almost like a religious rite of passage. Um, it's evolved. It's interesting to see how witchcraft changes. So Wicca is a religion. It was it's sort of a an invented religion. It was kind of assembled and codified by a guy named, largely by a guy named Gerald Gardner, who was a British folklorist in the 1930s. And it really you start to see it achieve some interest, especially among women in the 1970s as kind of an outgrowth of the women's movement and, and an outgrowth of the new age movement. Mm. Um, when people are looking for different ways of exploring their spirituality that might be connected to their ideas of gender or their questions about power or self-actualization and things like that. And so I've grown up, you know, in this post new age moment as we all have, and most of us know someone who, who is, kind of involved or whose spirituality is really spoken to this way. I think it's important to remember that the people in the 17th century who were tried as witches were uh, Christians. They were Christians who didn't fit in. They were Christians who were not able to toe the line for whatever reason. That doesn't mean that I don't think it's important that contemporary pagans and Wiccans feel solidarity for the persecution of people in the early modern period. I think that that is an important way of relating, but it's different. I mean, I think that, you know, your, your average accused witch in 1692 would not recognize a lot of the kind of ideologies or trappings of witchcraft today as it's understood. What we consider to be like just is, is clearly very fragile and it evolves with time. What can we do to sort of check in with our own thinking and see if we are falling into some of the cognitive traps that resulted in the Salem witch trials. One thing we're living through a really fascinating moment as, so I'm, I'm Gen X as generations younger than us are asking a lot of really persuasive and interesting questions about gender, about gender and sexuality. And I'm kind of fascinated to, to see how that is playing out within our culture and people seem to be really embracing and open to the idea that there is a continuum you know rather than some kind of fixed binary along which we are expected to adhere um, i think that that's pretty fascinating and it's a pretty big sea change i mean it's certainly different from you know the the universe i thought i grew up in a pretty like feminist like and um and so it's that's interesting to me to see. And I'm curious to see how that is going to continue to bubble through our culture and what kind of long-term changes it might engender, for lack of a better word. So that's really interesting. But I think mainly, you know, there's we are living through a moment of self-examination that I think is actually a very productive one. You know, we're living through a moment where we're encouraged to interrogate our assumptions about race and privilege. And our assumptions about gender and privilege, our assumptions about sexuality and privilege. I think there are a lot of good questions being asked about these kinds of assumptions about power that we have all grown up with, or most of us have grown up with. And so it's an interesting moment that we're living through right now. I really appreciate that you sort of called it a fascinating time because I think there's a lot of like overwhelm and 
a lot is happening and there, it can be negative. I think you're right. Like it is very fascinating. And to be able to critically challenge established thinking, like it's always a good thing, you know? It's hard though. It is. It's hard though, because then there's also this tendency of line towing. And so I think, you know, one of the challenges of the moment that we're living through right now is creating space for questions. That's a hard piece. Um, And I feel like we haven't totally worked through this process yet. No, I think that most reasonable people can agree that that is a good thing, though, regardless Mm -hmm. of sort of where you may find the answer that questioning is there's value in just that. It makes me feel hopeful. (laughs) So can you preview your next project for us? So my most recent book is I co-authored a book called Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty with Anderson Cooper, which is out in paperback. Uh, this September. And so it will be, it'll be fresh off the presses for this Halloween. And then next fall, at the moment, I'm working on a few different things. I have a novel that will be coming from Holt um, probably in November of 2023. We're still working out the title, but it is a, I wish I had a title for you, but it's probably going to be long and unwieldy. It's um, a historical fiction book that I'm calling Gone Girl Meets Treasure Island. Oh, wow. I'm very interested in that. It is an 18th century, like golden age of piracy, women with guns and cannons. And there's a parrot adventure that I just really threw myself into and had fun with. And it's based in historical research. Some of it really happened and it's a lot of fun and I'm pretty excited about it. Yes. That sounds right up my alley. So, (laughs) and then what are you reading right now? To be honest, I'm so deep in book revisions that I'm not reading a lot. I'm very slowly reading my friend, Julia Glass, is a novelist. She just published a terrific book called Vigil Harbor, which is set in the near future in Marblehead, Massachusetts, the town I was talking about at the beginning of our talk, in a kind of a post-climate change sort of world. And it's about these the intersections and relationships between people who are living through this you know, what the world might be like in another 10 years or so in a small coastal community. And it's, uh, it's fantastic. Vigil Harbor is, is what it's called. And her name is Julia Glass. She won the National Book Award uh, some years ago for her book, Three Junes. And she is brilliant and fantastic. So I'm very slowly reading her book in between um, reading edits on my own. The concept of the other or an outsider, a pariah, corrupting members of society who belong is not a new concept, and it is still around today. As values and commonly accepted worldviews shift, society will often change who gets labeled as unfit or who doesn't belong. But we can learn from the past, acknowledge that our modern ideas are worth examining, take them apart, put them back together again. And while the times in which we live may seem overwhelming, Critically challenging established thinking is important for every democracy. A huge thank you to Catherine for sharing her story and unbelievable insights with us today. Anyone who wants to learn more about her forthcoming pirate book or her collaborations with Anderson Cooper, check out her Instagram at Catherine B. Howe or on her website, CatherineHowe.com. 
which is linked in the show notes. While you're there, please leave us a review or a five-star rating. It really goes a long way for others to discover the show. You have been listening to Lawher with me, Sonia Palmer. If you found this content insightful, inspiring, or just made you smile, please share this episode with the trailblazer in your life. And I will see you next week on Lawher, where we'll shed light on how another of the brightest and boldest women in the legal industry climbed to the top of their fields. Oh,